Hello. Uh, welcome to the Free Rohingya Coalition um, Genocide Podcast Series. Um, I am Zani, speaking from the United Kingdom. Um, I have a distinct pleasure to have um, uh, Professor Daniel Fierstein uh, once again. Uh, this is the uh, part two of the two-part series that uh, um, Daniel and I um, are doing. And in the first series, um, Daniel Fierstein explained classic Lemkinian genocide, uh, going beyond the narrow technical definition of genocide and the almost impossible bar of the subjective intent to destroy a targeted national, racial, ethnic, or religious uh, community or populations, either in whole or in substantial part. Uh, in this second and final part, um, Daniel is going to walk us through um, a series of genocides that have been committed um, in various Latin American countries. And um, after that, he will make a comparative uh, observations um, with the Nazi genocide or the Holocaust. Um, uh, Daniel, um, welcome and thank you so much for uh, giving us um, you know, time to inform the, uh, the public uh, that may not be familiar with either the classic definition of genocide or the um, genocides that are less well known to the world. Uh, that is, uh, the genocides that uh, peoples of Latin America had suffered under various uh, military dictatorships and other autocratic regimes and invariably backed by the United States during the Cold War. Um, can you tell us about um, you know, the, the genocides in the continent where you live? And he is speaking to us from Buenos Aires, uh, Argentina, the capital of Argentina. Yes, okay. When we analyze the, <clears throat> the genocidal practices in Latin America, we have to take into account two different patterns to understand it. On, on one hand, we have a continental project, which was the national security doctrine backed by the US, and it was developed not only in Latin America, also in Southeast Asia, for example, the case of Indonesia and the subcontinent, Indian subcontinent, but <clears throat> it was quite important in, in Latin America. And it is the common pattern to understand the, the situation in the whole subcontinent. So going from Mexico to Central America, Colombia, Brazil, Uruguay, Argentina, Chile. Uh, so it was developed in almost the whole subcontinent with, with some common elements, very important commonalities, and some differences too. So on... On the second hand, we have the, the specificities of each situation, which how this national security doctrine project intertwined with the national specificities of each countries and the, the, the dominant classes in, and powers in each country. So it has its, its, its differences. 
So when we analyze the... I'm sorry to, the whole, to, sorry to interrupt. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because a, a lot of the public, um, you know, uh, the, the listeners may not be familiar with uh, uh, what, uh, you know, what is considered, uh, uh, what constitutes national security doctrine. Can you explain what you mean by a national security doctrine? The, the, do, yeah. the, the security of uh, human persons and uh, communities or security of the state as such uh, and uh, all the um, you know uh, allied institutions uh, uh, within the society such as you know uh, corporations or landlords and uh, you know th that kind of thing can, can you yeah, elaborate on, on the national security doctrine yeah, I, I think it is quite important to understand the situation in, in the whole subcontinent because the national security doctrine was a project created by the United States in the immediate post-World War. Uh, and it, it involved a, a redefinition of the armies in the continent with this idea that uh, Latin America was a kind of backyard of the United States. So even if it was developed at the beginning of the 50s, I would say that the creation, the, the official recognition was in 1954 in the conference of the Latin American armies in which it was presented by the United States, this idea that the enemy of the region was inside of the societies, so that the enemy was no more the, the enemy from the outside, so that the armies should transform uh, its hypothesis of conflict from inter-country war to a war inside each country against this internal enemy. That's the idea of the national security doctrine, that the enemy is an internal enemy. It is, the, it is called the communism, the subversion, or whatever it is called, that it puts in danger the, the Western Christianity. That's the main idea of the national security doctrine. So the proposal for all the, Ameri all the Latin American armies was to, to give the defense of the continent against external aggressions to the army of the United States and to transform the Latin American armies into armies of occupation of their own countries. So it was to transform the armies more in policies, in, in, in police, more in police than in armies. And this project wasn't followed in all the countries in the same way. But I would say that most of the countries took this idea of the national security doctrine and the first case was the overthrow of Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala just in the same year in 1954. Jacobo Arbenz was not a communist at all. It was just a, 
a nationalist government trying to recover some of the revenues from the U.S. companies in, in Guatemala and trying to, to make the situation of the Guatemalan people a bit, a bit better regarding this possibility to, to take some revenues from, from the U.S. companies. And the U.S. decided to overthrow with the participation of the Guatemalan militaries to overthrow that regime in 1954. It was the beginning of the genocide in Guatemala that took some decades and the worst moment was the beginning of the 80s. So this idea of reconfiguring armies in, in the whole continent was more and more important during the 50s and the 60s. Uh, but it is interesting that some countries decided not to follow this reconversion of their armies and it's interesting that the the tiny group of countries that decided not to follow this lead are the countries in which genocide didn't happen so for example the case of costa rica which decided to eliminate the army or the case of venezuela which is interesting to understand the the rise of Chavism at the beginning of, of the 21st century with, with an army that was quite different than most of the armies in the region. But I would say that taking account these exceptions, most of the armies in the region decided to took that, that lead. And that was the, the beginning of a, a regional decision to destroy the identity of the different peoples trying to recover the possibility to manage their own lives. So that's what happened in the region. Why, why I call it that way? Because the regimes that were overthrown and, and persecuted and, and destroyed were quite different. So for example, in Chile, we had a, a government that defined itself as a, a new a path to socialism, the, 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 the new way to go to socialism through democracy. But on the other hand, in cases like Brazil or Argentina or even Guatemala, we have government more concerned with what is called in, in, in the Western intellectual field as populism, which is quite different than the socialist experiences. Uh, I think this, this uh, label of populism is, is, is a bit complicated and dangerous, but anyway, just, just to be understandable outside the region, I would say they, they, weren't, they were clearly non-socialist governments. They were governments just trying to to recover the economy through a kind of welfare state. But that was unacceptable as the socialist experiences for, for the US. So they were uh, persecuted in the same way, uh, beyond the difference, differences among the different regimes and movements, all of them were persecuted because the idea was to transform the identity in each of these countries. Right. Um, 
the, you know, what, what I pick up from what you've just, uh, you know, uh, articulated here is that, you know, the uh, atrocity crimes, you know, the, the, whether uh, the, you qualify them as genocides or not, were committed by national armies against different populations within the territories of a new nation state in Latin America that were deemed uh, you know, a threat to national security of these Latin American countries with the backing and uh, perhaps military training and intelligence cooperation and political support of the United States, you know, we we know we know what happened uh, in Iran, where the uh, democratically elected government Mossadegh, uh, you know, with the socialist leaning, but at the time socialism was the order of the day, uh, because the leftist ideologies now, you know, uh, it has been attacked from the the mainstream media and other out outlets, yeah. Uh, with the uh, democratic parties moving to the center, yeah, uh, as they say. But in the 1950s, let's say, you know, five years after the end of Second World War and the end of classical, you know, uh, late classical European colonial empires, the French, the, you know, the Germans, the Italians, uh, the, the, the British, of course, um, they, they, these dissolutions of the empire were intellectually and ideologically supported by progressive leftist ideological and analytical framework. So therefore, the new peoples and new nations with their recovered sovereignty embraced a socialism of different brands as their national ideology. And what I picked up from what you say was that the first, uh, you know, US supported, uh, you know, the uh, uh, reconfiguration of a Latin American state took place in Guatemala. And, and that took place because the president who was not a hardcore communist, but wanted to recover, uh, uh, you know, fair uh, uh, a quantity of, revenues so that that those revenues could be used for the uplift of the Guatemalan communities right and so so there is an economic element involved in this national security when we say national security uh, the popular imagery that we get is this like you know a country under military intelligence and others form of direct threat. But this is just, you know, a, a Guatemalan a government, a small country trying to claim a fair share of its revenues vis-a-vis corporate profits uh, of the American corporation. So can you speak on the, the corporate element? You know, like you saw the, in what happened in Cuba, that Cuba was essentially run by uh, U.S. sugar, you know, uh, the, it was just a plantation economy. Much of the profits were repatriated back to the United States by the um, U.S. corporations. That was what triggered the Cuban 
revolution, right? Because the government became nothing but a puppet of Washington. So I, I figure in the case of Guatemala, such revolution did not take place. Instead, the uh, reconfiguration of the state took place and the army became the occupying force uh, uh, serving a police function for the United States, the external corporate and military power. Yeah, that, that's a fundamental point, Sarni, because the most common understanding of the situation in, in the Latin American countries, I would say, is totally wrong and has no elements. Which is this, this most common way is to understand that the situation was first uh, an intent of revolution guided by the Cuban influence in all of the countries after 1959. And then, so they are the, the the rise of the national security doctrine as a as an intent to make security in the countries and to defend the Latin American countries from the possibility of a revolution. But that was not the case. When we analyze, I have a lot of researchers in the whole region working on, on, on archives and, and on the field. And what we find, it is very clear, is that the, the, the time, the sequence, was the opposite. So it was a clear attack to the trade unions, to the popular movements, to the different intents of trying to, to create a welfare state in different countries. So these attacks that mean killing people, persecuting people, torturing people, uh, incarceration, different ways of attacking the popular movement. So that decision and that implementation of the national security doctrine created in some countries the need to resist these attacks. So in different countries, actually, some revolutionary movements were created, but in most of the cases, it was an outcome, it was an answer, a reaction after the attacks on the popular movements. So the situation was that the national security doctrine was created not to confront revolutionary possibilities that didn't exist in most of the countries, but to attack the possibility of those countries to gain some level of sovereignty, some possibility to, to manage their own economies, and some possibilities to move a bit away of the influence of the United States. Yeah, but if, if an external power comes in, with policy packages, yeah, uh, but, you know, with uh, but, you know the, the hundreds of millions of dollars, or uh, in the form of military aid or training or in quotes development or poverty alleviation, and then attempt to, you know, interfere with the national representatives' capacity to exercise their sovereignty, yeah, 
uh, that essentially is the issue of colonialism. And the colonialism is, you know, like now like we hear so much about, you know, the uh, uh, China's debt trap. Yeah? And I'm not a fan of like, you know, the uh, communist uh, China, uh, you know, to trying to, uh, you know, uh, essentially dent sovereignty of different African or, or Asian governments. Quite the contrary. I'm, I'm just uh, asking if we can, you know, I guess that maybe like a, to rephrase what I wish to say, China is coming in with loads of money and then attempting to control the port, uh, the policies, uh, foreign relations, uh, how a country, uh, you know, indebted to China votes on human rights uh, the resolutions at the uh, Geneva Human Rights Council and that sort of thing, right? But in, in this case, you know, about 50, 60, 70 years ago, the United States came in uh, with its full might, financial and military and technologically, and enabling Latin American national governments um, to restructure its, you know, uh, relations with its citizens, right? So that is the bit that I, I uh, you know, I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, you call this, uh, you know, uh, a genocidal policies because it involves reframing and reconstructing different social relations within the internal society of a given Latin American society. Exactly, it, it, it means, to reorganize, that was the word that was used in Argentina, it's very precise, it was, the, the Argentina process was called national reorganization process. So, and, and it is very precise because the idea is to reorganize the whole nation. And that means much, much more than confronting some leftist organizations. That means to destroy the whole social fabric through terror. That was the main idea. Did you, did you say the, through terror? Through terror, yeah. Yeah, that was the And that's why the concentration camps, and that's why the magnitude of the destruction had nothing to do with the power of the some revolutionary movements, but it had to do, the magnitude of the destruction in the different countries has a clear connection with the strength of these identities in each country. So when the identity was had a long tradition, for example, in indigenous traditions, like the cases of Guatemala, the magnitude of destruction was unbelievable. It was the worst case. The, the estimation is around two to three hundred thousand victims in a country of, of a few millions inhabitants. So, but why? Because the connection of these indigenous Mayan traditions in this construction of community was so strong. So, what they had to destroy was really strong, but the revolutionary movement in Guatemala was not so strong. So it was not 
this the element to understand the magnitude of distraction. So in, in Argentina, the role of Peronism was also important, not as much as the indigenous cases in Central America, but they had a tradition over the decades. So that's why it took some tens of thousands of victims to break, to be able to destroy this social fabric. And in other countries, the magnitude of the destruction was really low because the, the social fabric had no real tradition of a communitary construction. So even if they could have some revolutionary movements, the magnitude of the destruction was really low, like in the case of Uruguay, for example, or even Brazil, in which the victims, even there is a discussion if genocide could be used as a concept for those cases, because we are talking about some thousands of people being tortured and persecuted, but around less than 1,000 victims killed. So in these cases, there is a discussion if, if the terror need the killing, and I think so, that, that to, to, to be able to conceptualize something as genocide, you really need massive killings. So it, it is some way of using the terror. So I think that, that this kind of reorganization could be done through genocide or through other ways of persecution in which massive killing was not necessary at this point. Yeah. So, but I, I think it is really important to understand this, this idea of the destruction of the social fabric, which is in the main, in the core of the Lemkinian definition of genocide, in which the idea is precisely the, the intent to destroy the identity of a people to impose oppression, just to oppress those people. Because something very important to understand is that uh, what the US backed was uh, strong dictatorships and armies of occupation. In some cases, because you, you said that it was through the armies of each country, and it is true in almost all the cases, but even in some cases, it was direct US involvement through the US troops. For example, in Dominican Republic in 1963, the overthrow of Juan Bosch was done through the Marines, through the invasion of the US to Dominican Republic to overthrow Juan Bosch. But uh, in most of the cases, it was through this national security doctrine using the national armies as armies of occupation of its own country. So as armies to, to create a situation in which the sovereignty couldn't be possible. And it was the overthrow on, of democratic regimes and the, imposed, the imposition of dictatorships. And that's quite important because this level of colonialism is very clear in Africa or somehow also in Asia. But it's not so clear in Latin America, in which the story is being told in a very different way, even if the documents show something totally different. Yeah, well, because uh, you know the Latin American cases are considered um, the cases of indirect colonial rule. You know, uh, the the Americans in Washington 
of the, doing the backseat driving. You know, you've got a nominal driver, whether Pinochet or Perón or someone else, you know, in the driver's seat behind the wheel, uh, you know, the steering wheel. But you, you know, but what we don't see uh, in that scenario is this invisible hand of Uncle Sam guiding the, 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 the nominal driver. But what, what, I, what, what I find fascinating is that, you, you know, the, the, your description of uh, the, the actual policy, you know, they, the, you know, the Argentinian government, as well as other dictatorships across Latin America, they have the audacity to call their policy, policies national reorganization, you know. And, but, but I'm curious, what, you know, by what national vision, their own vision, yeah, the, the, the basically state terrorist vision of uh, a new Argentinian society posed uh, reorganization. Well, in other words, you know, it, it, as you know, like in the case of um, uh, Khmer Rouge in um, uh, Peng, uh, Cambodia, you know, the, the history was to start at ground zero. And then they've got this like, you know, classless uh, heaven and earth society where bourgeoisies of all kinds would be purged or decimated, right? Was there a, you know, I mean, that was obviously a totalitarian leftist genocide that Pol Pot and his cadres committed within a span of three and a half years. But we are here talking about a very different time frame. We're talking about decades of dictatorship, financially and militarily backed by the United States. What was the vision according to which uh, the, uh, the Latin American societies were internally reorganized. Yes, it is interesting your comparison with Cambodia because I think there is a lot of things in common in very opposite ideologies but with the same project that reorganized the whole society. So that's what is behind this idea of national reorganization process. The ideology that guided most of the Latin American regime and, and the Argentinian case is one of the most clear because it, wa it was one of the most developed. It was intellectually more rich, I would say, that there were more people working on it. In, in an in, it. They were not merely puppets of the US, there was a real project. And it was a project of, of changing the values of the society, this idea of the Western Christianity, that the problem of Argentina was either the indigenous legacy, the Afro-American legacy, and mainly the immigrants that came from South, South Europe and that weren't the immigrants that the country expected. And that this created some impossible climate to, to development. So the idea was to recreate the Argentine community through terror, to reorganize the values, the ethics, the morality of the, of the people and trying to destroy these agents of disorder. 
and this agent of disorder were uh, very uh, wide in scope. They were uh, either the unionists or the student movement uh, beyond if they were revolutionaries or communists or Peronists or social democrats, whatever they were, the problem is that they were obstacles to these new values of, of development and Western Christianity. So that was the main project and it was concerned not only with the US but also with the influence of French counterinsurgents that was very important in Argentina. It was even previous to the U.S. influence. It was the beginning of the 50s. Uh, the, the, the French counterinsurgents, this project developed in Indochina and Argelia, Algeria, and then the, the Argentine army were trained by the French even before the U.S. and it was the only case in the region. I would say the School of the Americas right. trained in all Paul the Benning. yeah trained all the Latin American countries. But the Argentine case was different because it started before with the French, and then they participated also in the School of the Americas. That's why, and it's a very important, interesting element about Argentina that when there was the only government in the U.S. which decided to move away from the national security doctrine, at least for the, last, for the first two years, which was Jimmy Carter administration. In that moment, when Jimmy Carter decided to move a bit away of the dictatorships, trying to challenge this approach and the, the consequences that the approach uh, created, it was the Argentinian regime that took the lead in the whole region. And uh, the Argentinian regime was the one which trained the Central American genociders, particularly in the school of Panama, and mainly participating in the case of the Contras in Nicaragua, in the case of El Salvador, even in Guatemala too. And then when Reagan won the election, it is interesting that the CIA uh, bought the, the Argentinian project. So they decided just to, to invest in what Argentina developed and trying to use these training these trainers and this project in the whole central america uh, that was developed in these two or three years in which the u.s moved a bit away from uh, baking this kind of projects in the whole region so that's interesting because you can see that there is some subtleties and some specificities that are really interesting to understand this the history of the whole region yeah i i think like what you know when we talk about um, uh, latin america you know we we are talking about two different regions uh, central american uh, smaller states with very strong um you know mayan and and uh, you know uh, pre um, uh, christian roots and communities and then you've got like uh, you know uh, uh, brazil and, and argentina you know considered essentially uh, uh, you know, say Europe of Latin America. 
and then you've got a chili, right? But chili is probably um, the best known case among Latin American uh, countries, you know, if only because of uh, uh, the two reasons. One is the uh, uh, Allende, the president, the socialist president, and then his daughter, who became a world famous author, um, uh, uh, writer. And then the other one is, of course, uh, the universal jurisdiction case against uh, Augusto Pinochet, who got holed up in 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 United Kingdom during uh, Thatcher's time. Right? Can you speak about the specificities of um, uh, Chilean case? Because uh, we have not touched on, you know, because it, it is uh, held up as a classic case of, uh, uh, you know, U.S. and Western-backed military dictatorship uh, committing atrocity crimes, and and also explain why uh, the, the the Chilean case qualifies as um, as a genocide. Yeah, the Chilean case is it's interesting because it's it's it has some specificities one of them is that there was a government in which these populist tendencies and the socialism intertwined uh, but through different uh, path than in other cases so it was the chilean way to socialism involved democracy so the idea is trying to create socialism through the, the possibility to win the elections. And that was, that happened in, in 1970 with, with Allende. Uh, that was one of the elements because it, I would say it was the, the only case in which that happened. Uh, the second element is that the, the involvement of the the U.S. was, I would say, not, 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 no more direct because it was direct in all the cases, but it is really well proved. There is a lot, a lot of documents of the participation of the U.S. administration and particularly the role of, of Henry Kissinger in the, in the, in the, creation in the decision to overthrow Ashende and, and to back the, the dictatorship. And particularly not only the US Department of State, but also some US companies participating in this uh, boycott to, to Ashende government. But on the other hand, uh, the, the crimes were really open to the public. So, for example, in comparison with Argentina, in Argentina, as it was after Chile, the decision was to hide the, the, the killings, the persecution, the disappearings, trying to, to, to hide particularly from the international and public opinion. But in the case of Chile, particularly in the, in the first months, it was very uh, very public, this this wave of persecution. The people were uh, interned in in, in stadiums. Uh, they were persecuted in the in the light in the light in the streets. It was very the, the horror was quite present, and that's why the whole world was shocked 
by the, the images that came from Chile in 1973. And that was really important. And other in, very important element is that the main element in Chilean persecution was torture. So the, the, the magnitude of the people being persecuted and tortured in Chile is even now is unknown, but the estimations are unbelievable. So even if Chile has around four to 5,000 people killed, the estimation is that around 100,000 people were tortured. So that means how terror works, that it, it, it is not necessary to kill too much people if the government is able to terrorize too much people and then to spread these terrorized people through society. So in a country that had less than 10 million inhabitants, 100,000 people being tortured, and then spread through the society, it was fundamental to understand how this transformation of the social fabric was possible in Chile and the consequences over the decades. So I think in that way, it is a very interesting case to understand that sometimes if the government has enough efficacy in the management of terror, even with the relative toll of people killed, the possibility to create, to reorganize society is even there with this use of terror through torture of massive amounts of people and then spreading these people over the whole population to terrorize the rest of the community. That's the way genocide works. And, and it's interesting because in Argentina, we thought that most of the people were killed. And only in the last decade of research, we understood that thousands and thousands of people never told that they were kidnapped, tortured, and released. So probably we have the same amount of people uh, persecuted in, in Argentina. We have much more killings, but probably we have the same amount of people tortured, but we didn't know until the last decade. So the new denunciation are very important, I would say in the last 15 years right. in Argentina, to understand the, the scope and, and the level and the magnitude of the use of terror. Right. Um, I, I think, you know, this poses a fundamental challenge to the global, popular, and even professional uh, understanding of what constitutes um, genocide as a process as well as acts, yeah? uh, acts of genocide and processes of genocide. Uh, but because uh, we are stuck with the, um, you know, quite narrowly defined um, uh, legal definition of genocide, where the, uh, the, the second half of Lemkinian conception of genocide is completely excluded 
from the legal reasoning that went behind the codification of his original concept of genocide, you know, in the form of the, uh, the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Genocide or the Crime of Genocide. What you are saying is essentially you are re attempting to reclaim, you know, the, the, the half of uh, the, what is left out of the popular and legal understanding of genocide. In other words, you are saying it isn't genocide isn't simply about physical destruction of peoples and lives and you know society. You're saying reorganizing it. So in other words, in the case of Chile, a socialist, a vibrantly democratic population has been, you know, terrorized to the point that the, the social relations came to rest on nothing but the fear of the state, feet, horizontal fear among populations, because in that scenario where a state is the main terrorist organization, uh, you know, the communal relations can no longer be based on this mutual trust and uh, mutual social confidence. Correct me if I'm wrong, because we don't hear, we don't use the word genocide to talk about crimes that have been committed against, uh, you know, societies and publics across Latin America. The most we would say crimes against humanity, or, you know, if there are two warring parties, we would say war crimes. But genocide is totally absent, you know, um, not, not because they were not committed, but because of the impoverished perception or conception of genocide as it come to dominate media, professional and legal understanding. Yes, you are right, but I would like to point out some, some clarifications. I, I, you express clearly what, what I'm saying, but I would say first, in my opinion, the problem is not the UN Convention. I think that the UN Convention, even with exclusion of the political groups, open a window to understand this destruction of identity through the idea of the partial destruction of the national group. And that was, that is in the convention, and that was the way in which some Argentine courts qualified what happened in Argentina as genocide. <clears throat> that was the way in which some European courts qualified the same for Argentina and Chile. And how, that's the way in which some Colombian courts <clears throat> are qualifying the case in Colombia, and even it is being discussed in some Chilean courts. So I think the problem is not a convention, but some interpretation of the convention. For some <clears throat> Western and intellectual tradition that understand this idea of destruction of a group in a way that is totally ahistorical, non-historical, <clears throat> in which there is a, a myth in which you believe on, or they believe that there is some way to define objectively the groups without understanding that identity is dynamic and that <clears throat> 
the only way to understand genocide is to understand that the, the genociders, the perpetrators, decided to qualify some part of the community as out of the group and to reorganize the whole group, taking this part as, as, an, <clears throat> as an alien and trying to put out not only these people, but any traces, any element of this identity in the rest of the community. So Lemkin was so clever to understand that the objective of genocide is identity, is the reorganizing and changing of identities. And I think even with all of the flaws of the convention, that is possible to be included in the UN convention. The problem is a problem of interpretation. It's a problem of what I used to call binary thinking, that, that it is a creating a myth in which you have people who hate each other and decided to kill other people, and you're reifying. It's a way of alienation in which we believe that there are different people that are objectively different on their own, when actually it is a creation of the genociders. It, it is very clear in the case of Rwanda. The Hutus and the Tutsis never existed as biologically separated identities two centuries before. It was a creation of colonialism. Hutus and Tutsis were clearly two different ways of behaving, two different ways of, of doing different kind of work, mainly to economic division of the society, but you can't find real cultural or linguistic differences between the Hutus and the Tutsis. So the idea of the genocide was just to create this difference, to transform the Rwandan identity. And I think you can analyze that in many, many cases, particularly in the 20th and 21st century. Of course, we have also the cases of clear colonialism in which some imperial power decides to take the lives of the people living in some territory. And in this case, we really have different and objectively different identities. But yeah. it is not mainly the case in most of the ge modern genocide we analyze, in which the genocide decides that, that the German Jew is something totally different than the German. But it is a creation because it is quite difficult in the 20th century in Germany to differentiate which were the Jewish uh, elements of the German identity, which is fundamental to understand German philosophy, German literature, German culture. And it is the same with the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire. And it was the same with the Bosnians in the former Yugoslavia. Yeah, so the, you know, of course, I did, when the, when the, um perpetrating group controlled the uh, organs of the state and had the uh, you know full might of its organs including the uh, organ of terror you know security sector uh, the, it, you know it is they are in a position 
to you know solidify this uh, reified idea of uh, objective identity therefore you know that i mean like you you brought up you know the as a good segue uh, about the uh, uh the the reification of uh, or exclusion of uh, you know jews in germany that have been there for centuries before you know germany became germany right and uh, all of a sudden i mean like i think like as you well know um you know many german jews they were german first culturally and otherwise their taste and consumption right uh the before they were jewish right and and all of a sudden and then many of them actually i was reading something like you know uh the, about the um uh, a lot of german jewish um uh, uh you know the men who joined hitler's uh you know armed forces you know uh, out of their sense of patriotism you know this was about defense of uh the Fatalen, right? And uh, they did not think that uh, you know, Nuremberg laws that uh, you know, Goebbels and others announced uh, applied to them because they felt so German, yeah? Because they, they could not differentiate themselves from the quote-unquote, uh, you know, blue-blooded uh, German aristocrats, you know? And then so the, in the early days, they did not feel that uh, Nazi party was a threat to them because they were one and 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 uh, you know one people right and then so you are here saying um, that um, this um, creation of this reified and reinforced uh, object you know the uh, objective uh, identity um, what do you know about the um, differences between the you know uh, the the Nazi genocide that you know not just the Shoah not just the killing of the Jew uh, German Jews but others you know the uh, the Holocaust the larger genocide um you know there are multiple victim groups involved in the case of uh, Nazi genocide broadly speaking and um, I think like in Latin American genocides uh that there must be more than one particular you know uh, the targeted community in each uh, national societies. Yes, the problem of understanding Nazism is that usually we take one very important specificity, which is the process after 1941, as the model for genocide when it was not the model but an exception. So I, I mean, you're talking about the, the final solution. Yeah, I would say that the the Nazism is very common, the Nazi experience, it's really similar to what happened in the Latin American cases, but in the former moments, I would say 1933 to 1939, or even 1940. So in that moment, they were they came from very different groups political dissidents unionists uh, jehovah witnesses members of the catholic church uh, slavs uh, roma populations i would say very very different groups that were they were persecuted trying to create a new identity a new 
way of understanding what being a German is and what being a part of the Reich is. And that was very similar to the national reorganization process in some Latin American countries. But the problem in the comparison is that then Nazism went to a level of, of, of this, I would say, total exaggeration of the process due to the situation of the war and this decision to kill a whole population uh, beyond the facts in, in the construction of identity, beyond the efficacy of these ways of destruction. So this moment of the final solution actually is totally different to what happened in most of the genocidal cases. So this industrialization of the, of the, of the killings, it is something that we, we can't see in any other genocidal process. So we, we don't have this kind of industrialization, neither in Cambodia, I am thinking in the worst cases, even in, either in Cambodia or in Rwanda or even in, in the Armenian case. So this level of industrialization is, is a specificity of the Nazi project that it is very important to, to study and to understand, but it is not the core of a genocidal project. So if we use genocide only for this specificity, so it would be a useless concept because it would apply only to one very specific situation. So I, I, I used to say that it is much more important to us thinking about this former period in Nazism to understand the core of a genocidal project, which is how Nazism decided to create concentration camps, to destroy the whole social fabric in Germany. Why? Because it is also fundamental to understand the second phase of Nazism, because without the first, without the genocidal project, without this first genocidal project in the 30s, the final solution wouldn't have been possible. So right, right. No because possibility of final solution without this destruction of the social fabric in Germany before. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, as, as the Hitler came to power in the spring of 1933 and you were, uh, you know, periodizing uh, the, the, the formative uh, and broadly uh, speaking genocidal project for the next uh, six years, well into 1939, 38, you know, when he snatched uh, Czechoslovakia and then later Poland, right? Uh, living space and all that. But what, what's fascinating is that the groups that he was going after one by one, you know, dissidents, political, you know, union, trade unionists, the communists, yeah, uh, using all kinds of excuses, uh, homosexuals, like disabled yeah. children, right? So, so basically, the, he's looking at populations and subpopulations that have distinct identities, yeah? group identities, and he's going after them. And, and then he had primed in this formative, say, like, you know, six years, he had, you know, rearranged the, the German mainstream society and prime that society, as you know, ideologically, so that it would no longer feel uh, uh, anything when the final phase came or the final project. But but you know what? I, my takeaway from what you mentioned is that 
contrary to the popular and dominant uh, thinking, that genocide has to resemble uh, Auschwitz project, you know, three camps and the final solution, right? What you were saying is that it, the, the, the final solution is not a model. It is an anomaly. It is an exception. It cannot be used as the yardstick to measure, you know, which cases qualify as genocide. Correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, this is really important because, you know, a lot of like, you know, uh, PhDs and, you know, Oxford educated, Harvard educated, you know, the professors at Yale, they would say, well, you look, you know, like the, in the case of the Rohingya, you say like, okay, well, 10,000 people killed. Well, that's like, you know, uh, the, the, the number of ki people killed in two hours in Auschwitz, right? So it all almost, uh, you know, this gold standard against which any other atrocity crimes has to be measured. And, uh, you know, unless you meet that bar, you know, you can, uh, you know, that's what like your, your former colleague, uh, uh, Bill Shabazz, uh, you know, um, um, uh, argue in, uh, you know, in front of the um, uh, ICG judges, uh, 15 or 16 or 17 of them, saying that, you know, the, the number of people that have been estimated to have been killed uh, in, in the case of Rohingya is less than 10,000, or maybe like you will take, you know, 5,000, maybe 15,000. Uh, that hardly amounts to substantial number you know, vis-a-vis -vis the total population of Rohingya estimated to be between two and three million. So, so it, it, you know, like you're treating the final solution and Auschwitz as the yardstick is really um, dis disingenuous and also does damage to those who seek accountability. Yeah, one, one of the fathers of the genocide studies and even the Holocaust studies, which is Yehuda Bauer, he differentiated very well and interestingly in, in his last works what he called genocide from what he called the Holocaust or the Shoah or whatever you want to call the Judeocide under Nazism, just to differentiate that genocide is a structural and more uh, usable concept that means this net of concentration camp this decision to reorganize an identity through the terror and then we have the specificity of Auschwitz which was one specific historical case which is not which had no other possibility to compare because there were no other case at least until the moment and I hope in the future too but who knows, <clears throat> to compare, in which this use of industrialization of killings, but genocide was not created only for that specificity. So I would say that the problem as taking Auschwitz as the model for genocide is that we are taking the exception and not the case. I would take the how. I would take even Auschwitz-Monowitz, but not Auschwitz-Birkenau, because Auschwitz had the three different models and the institution of genocide is the concentration camp, not necessarily the extermination camp. The concentration camp is a place in which the people are persecuted, tortured, interned there. Some of them are killed, but it is not an industrialization of the killing. It is a way to use terror 
to transform and reorganize identity. But let me give you one example interesting to understand the efficacy of Nazism and the concentration camp system and genocide in Germany in the 30s, which is that when na the Nazis call for a boycott against the Jews in 1933, the boycott failed. So why? Because the German population was not enough reorganized to participate in this kind of persecutions. But after five years of this genocidal project in Germany, when the Nazi government called for a Kristallnacht in 1938, the participation grew up a lot, but was much more important. Even the people who decided not to participate, they were terrorized in their homes. So there was nothing like the reaction against the boycott in 1933, in 1938. So it was very clear in 1938 that this project of national reorganization was uh, had a very important outcome and the possibility to really transform the identity of the Germans. And that's fundamental to understand what followed after this project. So that's why it's so important to me to understand the 30s in Nazism and trying to move away from the Auschwitz model, which is very specific, and trying to understand the net of thousands of concentration camps in whole Europe, which were not like Auschwitz. Uh, the model, I would say, is Dachau, to take one case. That was the model of this. And Dachau was the first concentration camp created by Nazism. That's why, in my opinion, it's the model. Dachau was created in 1933, just even weeks after Nazism took power. And it was the model for the whole country and then for the whole Europe, trying to reorganize identity through terror. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, in in, in Munich, you know, you talk about Christian Nord, um, the night of the bro broken broken glasses, right? Uh, the the you know the, the the Munich was one of the uh, uh, the original Nazi stronghold, the Bavarian uh, capital, and of course, and, and and then like you know, you mentioned Dachau, uh, it was also on the outskirts of Munich as well. You know, we. We, uh, the one other uh, ranger activist and, and myself, uh, we were visiting Dachau, and uh, the, as soon as um, you know the um, the receptionist at the, um, the gift shop, uh, the real, uh, you know, we informed them that we are from Burma. Both of us, he is ranger and I was Burmese, and we are fighting to uh, you know the, the, to get some attention for the uh, genocide that's going on. And uh, the lady, she said, "I'm from Dachau. She lives in that village." And she said, you know, the world has not learned anything. Yeah. So do you have any final parting comment before we end the uh, conversation? Uh, we're almost, uh, you know, on one hour mark uh, on this, you know, uh, sadly, uh, empty slogan, uh, never again. Yeah, it's interesting because it is not only empty, but the problem of the slogan never again is that it is unclear never again what. 
So uh, there is an, uh, an Argentine scholar which uh, has written a very interesting work about this never again, saying that never again is not only never again the horror, but it could mean also never again the identities that were destroyed. So I think that instead of never again, I think that to, to really confront with a genocidal mind is trying to deconstruct this genocidal way of understanding identity, to deconstruct this idea of binaries, identity that confront each other, and to understand that in most of the genocide, these identities were part of the same community and that the work of genocide was to break this commonality, was trying to create different identities in a place in which those identities were intertwined. So I think that that's the, the most important element I would like to point out at the end of our, our conversation, that when you denounce Nazism as the German killing Jews, even if you say never again and you are denouncing the killings, you are ratifying the genocidal mind. Because what are you saying is that Germans are not Jews and Jews are not Germans. And that's what Hitler thought. And that's what Hitler wanted to convince the whole humanity, that Germans weren't Jews and Jews weren't Germans. So when you understand Nazism as a partial destruction of its own German identity, that's the way to confront the genocidal mind. And that's the same in Turkey, and that's the same in Rwanda, and that's the same in former Yugoslavia, that's the same in Myanmar or in the Latin American countries. That the genocidal mind tries to recreate identity, convincing us that the identities are separate and that we are no longer able to live in the same community. Right, right. And I think that we have to confront this genocidal mind yeah, to different uh, understandings of genocide. Yeah, that is a fascinating and very valuable way of uh, uh, you know, educating the public uh, in the... Um, in the well-intentioned process or quest for accountability and justice, you know, uh, all of us can simply uh, reinforce this uh, Hitlerite, Hitlerian uh, notion that there are people whose identities are immutable, right? Whether we demonize or we victimize those identities, you know, of course, like, you know, as good people, or at least I self-perceive good people, we like to stand with the, uh, say, Rohingyas or, you know, the, Khmer, the, the victims of Khmer Rouge, right? But the, the danger here, uh, as I understand your warning, is that, uh, you know, the, through our good intentions, uh, that we can simply reinforce this binary, you know, redefined notion of us and them and others and uh, the in, you know the inclusive uh, identities and so well um, I am talking I've been talking to Professor Daniel Fierstein 
past president of the International Association of Genocide Scholars, uh, the also uh, presiding chair of the P uh, Permanent People's Tribunal, uh, uh, and and uh, also you know a tireless um, advocate to confront uh, genocidal mind. It's been a great pleasure, and it's extremely informative, uh, Professor uh, Fierstein. Uh, thank you so much, and uh, you, you so have much. a great evening in the Paris of Latin America. Okay, same to you. Bye.